Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season three of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. Backed by popular demand following the first two seasons, I'll bring you a string of interviews over the next 10 weeks with a number of seasoned traders in my network to give you a first-hand insight into how they trade the world's financial markets so successfully. The first two seasons of this podcast have had over 20,000 downloads of the interviews, so I've used this traction to seek greater global reach for the third season. A special word of thanks must go to our sponsors, IG Markets, for continuing to fund this podcast and to allow it to flourish. In season three of Talking with Traders, I've gone beyond the borders of South Africa to speak to traders from across the globe. I'll ask pertinent questions of each of my guests to really try and get them to open up about what makes them consistently successful when it comes to taking on the world's financial markets. Joining me on today's episode of Talking with Traders is Richard Thomason. Now, it's a name that most people won't know, and a lot of the guests that I've interviewed on Talking with Traders have been well-known from the industry. They're either asset managers or private traders who trade full-time for a living, and perhaps some of them have a bit of a household name. Um, Richard is not like that. He's a private guy. He is not a full-time trader, funnily enough. He has a full-time job. And But what I, what I liked about him and why I came across Richard was because I follow him on Twitter and he's, he tweets a lot about markets. He's clearly got a great passion for the markets, tweets his performance as well, which has been impressive over the years. And it got me to thinking I need to reach out and uh, try and talk to a couple of, of more regular guys who are just like many of the listeners to this podcast who are trying to do trading as a maybe a part-time thing. Uh, trying to make a success of it and work their way through the system. So I felt Richard was a great guy to talk to. We've, uh, we don't know each other, unlike many of the other guests that I've spoken to on this series. Um, I've never met Richard before, but we've engaged uh, via a Zoom call before this just to understand each other a bit better. And um, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you, Richard. So welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Garth. It's great to be here. And I've uh, followed you over the years when you ran your TV show and uh, I've certainly listened to your, your current podcast. I have it in my uh, podcast catcher and uh, I've certainly tried to take something out of each of the guests that you have on the show. So it's a great honor to be here. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for agreeing to talk to me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're about to have. So, Richard, let's get right back into it and in, in, into the beginning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? First of all, you're not a full-time trader. Um, you mentioned that to me. What do you do full-time for a living? And then secondly to that, uh, how did you actually get into trading? Sure, God. Yeah, so I actually um, I grew up as, and, and trained as an engineer, a chemical engineer, funny enough. And I currently work at a large multinational beer organization in the area. So you, you can work that one out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I actually became involved or were interested in markets back in 2003. So I was working up in Johannesburg at the time. And as a 20-something-year-old, you know, does, I was looking for a bit of extra income. So I was at a franchises and business opportunities expo at uh, Gallagher State in Midrand. And uh, there was a whole lot of tables and expos out. And I came across a, a table called London School of Investment. And they were running a, a competition to win a course where you could uh, win their software and training material 
you just had to leave your email address and uh, I did that and moved along and uh, I didn't win the, the, the software or the program but uh, you know the guy phoned me on the Monday and wanted me to, <laughs> to buy his package so he came and saw me at, at my workplace and uh, told me that this magic piece of software could probably earn me about 50% a year and so I thought wow that's fantastic so you know we, he took a few thousand rand from me and that's how I got started um, so that's that's pretty much where it, where it all started off for me. Okay, super. Now a lot of guys will relate to that story. They've been to a seminar or or, or something similar and been sold or try, you know been tried to be sold some sort of software, some sort of as you said magic piece of software um, that supposedly makes all sorts of promises and makes trading seem quite easy. Um, what has your experience been like after that? I mean, did you did you use the software? Did you use their system? And how how did it work for you? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was a great intro, actually. So I read through all the course material, and it was a good course. You know, uh, it told me everything from RSIs to castics, and uh, but I really dived into understanding the nomenclature and the terminology. So that it was a good background from that point of view. But after that, it was it, you know there was a daily newsletter that came that told me which shares I should look at and things like that. So after a period of paper trading, I decided, well, you know, I just need to buy some shares and see how it works. So the first three shares I bought on uh, 5th of November 2003 were Connection Group Holdings, McCarthy Limited, and Pumalela Gaming and Leisure. So I funded my account with a few thousand rand, and uh, I think McCarthy was trading at about 50 cents at the time. And the very next day, um, I think Bidvest put in an offer to buy them out at, at 34 cents. So that particular trade dropped 32% on the open the very next day. So that was my intro to trading. And... Uh, I didn't know what to do after that, so I just let it run a few days, realized the thing wouldn't move anymore, and then eventually sold it and uh, and thought, I'm going to work this you know, this market thing out and uh, try to persevere and learn from there. Okay. And I mean, you, I suppose you've answered the question to a certain extent already with that experience on, on McCarthy, but I mean, my next question really to you was going to be, what were your first years like? Now you've, you've gotten started, you've put a few thousand rand into a trading account, you've learned some technical analysis from um, this provider that you had met, but obviously we know that that's not all that's required. There's a lot of hard work that goes in beyond that. So what were your first years like uh, after you started trading? Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I tried to track my portfolio uh, versus the overall uh, J203 uh, with dividends. And uh, the first three, I think the first year actually had a very good year. Like, you know, I was up 50 or 60%. And then uh, thereafter, I underperformed a bit for the next two years. And, and after that, it, it sort of came back. Um, but I started to work out, what, you know, what, what moved markets and uh, what worked and what didn't work. And, and you know, I tried a few things. I was never really one to look at the oscillators and over those years I was really developing my craft and developing my strategy um, because I think you know as a trader one does have to develop a strategy that's that's very personal and, and tailored towards their lifestyle and their personality that works for them no, no two traders are the same so mm. so that's how the how the years unfolded initially yeah okay that's a really interesting point you ask uh, that you make there about no two traders being the same and um, and that you've got to develop a, a strategy that works for you and that actually is exactly the next question i've got on my on my list to ask you is that what is your primary strategy because as you say there, there are no two traders are exactly the same there are so many different strategies that you can take um to to approach the market so do you have a particular primary strategy that you that you stick to 
Yes, so Garth, I think, um, you know, I would describe myself as a, as a trend-following trader. And in fact, that book, Trend Following by Michael Cavell, influenced a lot of my trading uh, significantly. Um, so I'm looking for, for shares that have a chance of moving significantly, like, a, you know, have a, a probability of moving several hundred percent, say. So I'm looking at growth shares that are, have got high momentum behind them that possibly have come off a solid base and that have got a good chance of recovering. So they might have multiple, you know, multi-year support, for instance. Mm. And then, you know, while, while I'll never catch the bottom of that, it's quite difficult to catch the bottom. You want to hop onto that trend after they've turned and then you'll never catch the top um, and get out perfectly, but you want to catch the rump of that move. Mm. And there's various ways of doing that. A, a very elementary way is just using, you know, a moving, moving average system, which a lot of people will know about. But on top of that, I, I listen to a lot of market commentators, podcasts, TV shows. I follow many people on Twitter, which is a fantastic source of information. Um, but you just need to be cautious. And then what I try to do is turn around all these ideas in my head and form an opinion about what's the sentiment on the market? Where can the market go from here? What, what are some of the crowded trades at the moment? What could derail the gold miners, for instance? Uh, you know, what could derail the pandemic trade? Um, and then I look around myself uh, as, as I go out and, and, and lead my day-to-day -day life. And uh, I read a good book, uh, it's actually the first one I read by Peter Lynch, where you can just apply common sense. So you see a lot of new cars driving around at the moment. You know, interest rates are low. People are now spending more. Uh, the, the economy has been stimulated. The malls, they were so quiet a few months ago. They're now busy. People are spending money again. How could that... Um, play into a potential trade and how would the future look like sort of given those clues that you've been um, being given on a day-to-day -day basis so once I'm in the trade I'll, I'll, I'll use technical analysis so I am a chartist at heart like you got and um, I'll use that to time my entry and then I won't get out of the trade until it's retraced so if I have to ride that trend forever I'll do that but only once it's it's exhibited significant volatility or there's been some hectic fundamental news about it that I don't like or it's retraced a certain percent will I actually pull the plug and um, lock in my profit or loss okay all right and um so I mean from what I, I'm reading between the lines of what you're saying it sounds like your approach is is mainly more of a trading sort of investing type of approach however with technicals to time your entry and to make sure you stay in while the going's good and get out if the good if, if the going is no longer good. Am I right in that basic assessment? Correct, Garth. Yeah. So um, I actually run two accounts. I've got a US account and a, um, a local account on the JSE. So the local account's been going since the beginning, as you know, and then the the, the offshore account's um, a little less long. So 2011. Um, my average duration, I, I would say, I. So in fact, on the local account, I think 14 months is my average trade. But I have been in a trade about as long as six and a half years. Um, on the offshore account, it's a bit shorter term. And I find I can trade a little bit freer because I'm looking at the markets after hours, after my work. Um, and then occasionally I'll trade around a core position. So I will hold good, solid companies. Like in the US, I'm, I'm holding Berkshire, I'm holding Nike for long, long periods of time. And then I'll trade around those mm. core positions um, to, to lock in some profits where I can. Right. 
Okay. Okay. And when you say trade around um, a position, so I, I get that you've, you've got a longer term view on a, on a stock. Um, let's just say Nike, for example, um, great company has done hell of a well over the years, but yes, there's plenty of volatility within that. So in terms mm. of trading that volatility and trading around that core position, is there anything specific you look at there? Are there, you know, you mentioned you do look at charts and you are a bit of a technician. So is there any specific technical criteria that would get you, for example, into a long trade um, when you're trading around that core position and then get you out of a long trade similarly when you're trading around that core position? Yeah, so I mean, um, often I will, I will actually uh, just hold a stock, so um, you know, a, lo a longer term stock like this uh, throughout. Um, what would make me get out of something like this is if, if it, you know, if there's significant fundamental news that goes against that, or the earnings is really poor, the outlook starts to dim, or Adidas starts to catch up with him. So I will look at some fundamental factors. So it's difficult to nail those particular ones to, to say, right, I'll, you know, if this thing fell 20%, then I'll bail and I'll, I'll call it a day on Nike. But um, I, I guess to answer your question, I'm, I'm also applying some sort of intuitive element to it, uh, if that makes sense, Garth. Yeah, that makes sense. You're having a little bit of a gut feel. And as you say, you, you're looking at it from sort of a 3D perspective. You're not just looking at the chart in, in 2D to see what it's doing technically. So I, I, I do understand that. Um, and in terms of what you trade, the instruments you're using, I'm, I'm referring to now, uh, your yeah. holding time frame, as you've mentioned, average time is 14 months. So that's quite a long time. Um, and, and up to six years in some cases, you said. So are you just trading the physical shares only, or do you also make use of derivative instruments like CFDs or futures? No, so I trade straight shares, and uh, I've never actually traded CFDs and futures. I, I know how they work, yeah. um, and, and I don't use any leverage at all. You know, um, I think one has to be very careful. I've always been a, a bit uh, circumspect with regards to leverage. I know you've used it well, and you've certainly sized your positions well and taught people um, how to do that. There's ways around it. You can fund your account properly. And I've been a bit nervous about trading individual shares uh, on a geared basis because, you know, you can have news flow that can hit something in a positive or negative way. And if you're not uh, set up with a stop loss to take you out of that position immediately, then you can really, really uh, get it handed to you. Um, but there's ways around it. Like I said, you can you can size your positions, uh, you know, two two and a half percent of your portfolio. So you need to know your R amount and you know at what point will you get out. Yeah. Um, so everything I've done is is pretty much been uh, straight equities. Yes. I think yeah. if I were to do it maybe full time, um, I would I would tra trade an index possibly just to take that risk out of it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, an index, you're right, is not going to do, you know, an index is not going to do a Steinhoff on you where it drops, you know, 80% in a week. So, so yeah. I, 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 I hear you there. Um, you, you did talk about, um, you know, your R. And for those listeners who are not familiar with what we talk about, and we're talking about the R is your risk um, acceptance. So if your R is 2.5%, it means that just for argument's sake, you know, if you've got a hundred thousand rand, you, you're risking two two thousand five hundred rand on a trade. Um, that's how much you're willing to lose if a trade goes wrong or it hits your stop loss, okay. right? So that's just for the listeners to understand what we're talking about when we refer to the R multiple. And of course, in an ideal world, what we're always striving for is that your profits must be multiple times bigger than your R. So you're looking for profits that are three times or four times or five times 
are. But as from what you've said, you know, the, in the time frame that you're looking at to trade, you're looking at even more than that, many, many, potentially even thousands of percent if, um, if you're in the right stock. But I want to bring that back and ask you a bit about your approach to risk. So obviously, you've said, first of all, you don't trade leveraged products, you trade the straight spot equity. So that in, in itself already is, a mis- is, is something of a risk mitigating factor. But um, you know, even with spot equity, things can go wrong. We've seen it with a number of stocks. So how do you manage your risk? Do, do you have specific stop loss levels in mind when you go into a trade um, or, 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 or not? What, what is your approach to risk? Yes, I certainly do use um, a, a stop loss graph. Um, I think the best trades initially go right uh, from the get-go. That's been my um, um, my sort of uh, finding so often if something moves against you 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 need to apply an initial stop of say seven percent to ten percent i'll let the thing run twenty percent against me before i actually start to to say right this is not working and i'll and i'll get out um i think my approach to risk is it's taken me a long time to learn this but markets are really uncertain places um and in anything in life humans try to find patterns in everything and uh Unlike animals, well, they'll adapt to the environment quite easily. Humans want to be in control of the situation. So, you know, uh, all other professions like, you know, pilots or brain surgeons or anesthetists, I think you, know, you have to get this right 100% of the time. And if you don't, you can put other people's lives in danger. You can um, lose your job. Whereas, and you know, I've been brought up to be a perfectionist and to get things right all the time. If you study this, you'll pass, etc. But you have to go into each trade knowing that there's a chance of financial loss. Um, so you, you have to be very clear that you, you have an edge somehow. Um, and it's about honing that edge over time to, to try and really uh, capitalize when you do get those opportunities that run in your favor. And when they don't, to cut, no matter how probable the trade seems if it's going against you you can't say well just one more day just one more day just one more day because before you know it you've got a long uh, a, a big loser that's going against you and, and and it really starts to weigh on you yeah. Mm. yeah no that's quite right and tell me do you add to your winning trades because uh, that's obviously that's one of the sort of the cardinal rules of successful trading successful investing is don't add to losers but do add to your winning positions. So do you build a position bigger as it goes more and more in your favor? I don't generally do that, Garth, but it's funny you ask that because I have actually just initially uh, pyramided some positions. I got rid of a loser and I, I added, uh, I divided the, you know, the position by three and added to three other positions that were going in my favor. Um, so I have in the past, uh, many, many years ago, but generally speaking, I will just take a position as it grows in my favor. I won't um, manage the portfolio around it. I'll just let it move in my favor. And even if, if it grows very big in my portfolio, I'll just ride that momentum, that winning trade for as long as I need to. Yeah. And you're not worried about a position becoming an outsized position in your portfolio. Um, you know, I guess you're not governed by any rules like the Regulation 28 rules that um, pension funds and those sort no. of guys are, are obliged to abide by where they have to resize positions. And that, that actually becomes disadvantageous when you've got a really good winner on your books that becomes an outsized position. You don't have to worry. Correct. About yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking to, to, 
you know, if, if I hit the next Nuspers, I'd, I'd be willing to ride that thing for as long as I needed to. And that would maybe become a core position within my, within my portfolio. Um, but uh, certainly I'm cognizant that, you know, if I'm in a winning position on a, uh, a commodities stock, for example, then I know that will eventually turn and I need to move out of that. And that is a risk I need to watch carefully. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. The, the commodity stocks are always very cyclical. So you, you're right. When you catch yeah. the cycle in the right time, you can make a lot of money. But you've also got to know when the cycle's finished and it's time to get out. Because you know we see with yeah. stocks like like Anglo's and Billiton and Rio Tinto and the like that you know these things can give you 300% upside in the in the good times or more. But in the in the down times, you know you can lose 50, 60, 70% of your money sometimes when the cycle. Absolutely, bad. yeah. Yeah, now when McCurry talks about that, says, you know, you look like a hero if you catch the thing right, like Kumba at 25 or 40 or whatever it fell to, now it's 600. But if you, if you let it run and you just say, well, you know, now I'm an, a full-time investor and I'll just leave this thing as long as I need to, you've got to have high conviction that this thing won't go belly up from that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. And that's where I think a, a, an approach like yours is 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 correct. You know, you you look to hold while the going is good, while the technicals are strong, while the momentum's up. But as soon as it stops working, you can look to take your money off the table and do something else with it. You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Now, moving yeah. on, Richard, I've asked all the guests on this podcast series these, these two questions. So I'm, I'm going to ask you the same two questions. What was your um, your best and worst trade? So let's start with your best trade or best investment that you've ever made in the stock market. Okay, so um, so so the one I'm going to tell you about now, Garth, is is not actually a winner. I mean, most people would probably say uh, it. You know, your best trade was the one that made you the most money or made you the, the happiest or something like that. So the one that was my best trade is actually something a share that taught me the most um it was actually a loser and it was a share we spoke about earlier steinhoff so um here here's a here's a share that taught me a lot so i'm sitting in the stock I, I broke so many rules in this and and you know we're human we we do break rules we can only do the best we can so i was holding a, a fair chunk of steinhoff at the time and it was troubling me. There was, you know, there was smoke in the on the horizon. They were, I think, they were they deferred their results. They they were being investigated for tax evasion or tax fraud or counting. There was big scrutiny there. The, the German investigators were on their case, etc. There was a court hearing, and I didn't like this at all. And and I was actually in in a loss at the time. And I remember going to the taste room and I was discussing this with one of my friends or colleagues uh, and saying. I'm in, I'm in Steinhoff at the moment. I'm in a loss. It's just past my stop loss. I haven't sold. It's a big position. I've just started scaling up and, you know, it's worrying me at the moment. He says, no, Richard, you must take your medicine. You must sell the thing. And, you know, that made perfect sense to me. Um, I think I'd also even added to a loser, which is a total no-no. You should never, ever do that. It's the only time I've ever added to a loser, hoping that it would go away. So, so following that, Garth, I went back to my desk and I sold the whole thing. So that was on the 5th of December, 2017. If you remember the timing for that, I think the very next day, 
I, by the way, my, my friend went back to his desk and took a CFD short on Steinhoff. So the next day I woke up and I went onto Twitter and I saw that Delphine Governor had said that Marcus Yus had resigned. And I messaged my mate and said, this thing's going to fall like a stone today, Paul. And I, I think it opened up down 62%. So, I mean, this was dumb luck on my part in terms of the timing. But what it taught me was obviously never to add to a loser and to always obey your stop loss, no matter how good the company sounds. You know, people at the time, if you remember back to this, people were saying, you know, it's just been added to the DAX and it's going to be the next, you know, I don't know what. People will love the stock yeah. and they couldn't believe it. And even once it had fallen to nothing, uh, people still hold it and think that it might come back. And so, I mean, that was a very, very lucky loser but i consider it my best trade because it taught me so much i sharpened up on my you know my, my process i started reading more i'd become complacent at the time actually um so so that was my best trade i say okay that's a very interesting perspective and yes i mean i re obviously everybody remembers steinoff i remember exactly where i was that morning when it dropped 62 percent. i was i was actually on holiday at the time down in kzn but it's very memorable for all of us and it's a you know biggest corporate scandal in South African history. Interesting that you counted as your best trade and the reasons that you've given are very, very sound. I mean, the lessons learned were, were superb. And what about yeah. your worst trade then? <laughs> yeah, so, so the worst trade um, is probably one on, on the US side of things. Um, so I was holding a company called Chesapeake Energy. Mm. So these guys are a, a, a fracking company. Um, that were all you know this position was also moving against me and i'd, I'd held it a bit longer than i should have and again as i say uh, your your inner um brain starts to tell you this is not right and you should sell but you you, you might hang on one more day as david paul says you you know that's a loser's mentality mm. and i did that and and eventually i sold this thing for a loss and uh, thank goodness i did that because the company went bust eventually and uh, no matter who you speak to, no matter what book you read, if you do not have a stop loss and you let losers run, at some stage you're going to get carried out. And that's what, again, why you should only, why you should size your positions accordingly. Because even if you were to lose that entire position, which luckily I didn't, and, and lose all the capital, you'll still be afloat to, to, uh, and not be ruined in terms of your account. You'll still be able to play the game. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, like you say, if, if you're not leveraged as well, then um, it's not going to wipe you out either. But if you are leveraged on a, on a really bad situation, you know, it can obviously wipe you out. The other thing I would say to that is, is also the technicals very often do give you a very clear uh, heads up that something's not right beforehand. And I don't know if you've also observed this in your investing and your trading, but for example, Steinhoff, exactly what you mentioned. I mean, that stock, yes, it, it, absolutely, as you said, that, um, there were a lot of guys touting the good news, the fact that it had been added to the DAX and that there was all sorts of the reasons to be positive on the stock. But that technical structure had just been deteriorating and deteriorating for months and months and months, notwithstanding, you know, this supposed good news and i mean i saw a lot of of asset managers in fact who ignored that they they in fact a couple of them who i won't mention but i know doubled up in that stock just before the collapse so i suppose the lesson is look at um look at your technicals make sure you obey them and if you do see a situation that doesn't look right um you know those technicals need to confirm the fundamentals and if the technicals are not telling a good story 
listen to that because that is exactly the market talking to you. Um, and is, is that also been part of your sort of rationale for getting out of some of these things, these weaker positions? Yes, absolutely, Garth. So, I mean, I, I watch the charts very carefully. I look at the candles. Uh, I look at support and resistance. And, you know, often the, the anguish that happens inside of you is, you know, structurally that the chart is poor. It's broken down from some, you know, uh, pennant or something like that. And it's, it's broken through some key support. And, you know, you should sell. And the, the chart really tells you everything. That's a, it's a blueprint of all the traders' emotions that, and beliefs that they put onto the market. It actually has all the fundamental news in it. So that's your first clue. And, um, you, you know, if you listen to people like David Shapiro, they'll say, you know, listen, listen to the chart. It's telling you something. And uh, it, it, you, you don't often hear about the fundamental news until later. So the chart will start to tick up and you think, well, why is this thing ticking up? Or it starts to tick down and then something comes out. EOH, there's just so many stories like that. So, you know, the chart is certainly your first clue. So I wouldn't be able to trade without charts. That's the, the first clue. And I've, I've got lots of lines all over my charts. So that's the first thing to go to and have a look at, at what's happening in your company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fundamental, uh, the, the technicals rather um, invariably do lead the fundamentals. That's certainly been my experience. Now, I mean, we mentioned this that obviously you're not a full time trader. You have a full time job. Um, so this what, trading shares, investing in shares, is something that you do on the side. But you clearly are very passionate about it. And as I say, I follow you on Twitter. In fact, anyone listening to this uh, who's not following you, they should go to at Richie T. That's Richard's uh, Twitter handle and uh, follow him he's got some great stuff and I, I thoroughly enjoy your tweets and i can see the passion shining through in everything that you tweet richard um but now you, you're not a full-time trader as i mentioned would you ever consider taking this up as a full-time to do for a living or, or or is that not something that's even remotely on the cards for you yeah i got that's it's it's a great question so I've turned that question over in my head many, many times. Um, so, you know, when I was younger, possibly it would have been a very, very much an easier decision, very clear. Um, at this stage of my life, I, um, I've, you know, I've, I've got very little obligations in terms of debt and things like that. Um, but I do have two kids who, who are up the road at a private school. So the, the lumpy nature of the market scares me somewhat. Um, uh, so, and then obviously I have a career at, at the brewery as well, which I've, um, I've been successful at. And, um, so, you know, I have four things that in my life that I'm passionate about. It's, it's family. I think in that order, family, stocks, beer and running. Um, so I tried to find a balance between those. Um, if I were to make the leap into this to do it full time, um, I don't think I'd be that far away if I were to to want to make that move. Um, but I think you know the I think it's Nassim Taleb that says that there's three three things that are most addictive in life. It's it's heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly paycheck. So <laughs> <laughs> the the lumpy nature of the markets and and you know your returns can be fantastic one year and then um, you you could lose money the next year. And I guess it's like being a real estate agent or something. So if I were to do it full-time, I would have to be, I guess, a portfolio manager where you have stability of income or um, to supplement your income with something like a course or a newsletter or mentoring or something that these other people tend to do when they, when they do it full-time, just to have that certainty of income. 
Yeah, well, that's it. And I'm glad you've spelled that out nicely that, you know, because I, I get approached by people often um, saying, oh, I, I want to quit my job and I want to start trading. And yeah, I think people are just under such a misconception about what's involved and what's required to do this successfully. And, and that's why I wanted to ask you that question, because obviously you're somebody who is in formal employment. And uh, yeah, you, 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 as you say, the the allure to take it up full time, sure, it's there, but you're also realistic about the fact that it's not easy and the the um you know the performance can be lumpy. You can have bad years and and, and like you say, when you've got children in private school and you've got a, a high cost of living and thing bills to pay every month, that there's a lot of pressure that on, on you if you are doing this full time and you you know you're compelled to try and be profitable every single month. It makes it hell of a difficult. And, and exactly what you say is how I do things. I mean, I trade, but I, the reason I run my Traders Corner subscription service and my courses and do other bits and pieces like this podcast series, for example, is for exactly that reason, because you want some risk-free income so that you're not entirely dependent on trading for a living, because the psychological aspect of trading just for a living and being compelled to be profitable every month in order to pay the bills is is absolutely enormous. and even myself with 20 years of experience in the market, I'm not ready to go full-time um, and give up my risk-free sources of income yet. So yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, now you, you also mentioned you do trade us markets as well as the South African market. And in our um, chat before this, you said that you'd noticed there's some fairly big differences between the US market and the SA markets in terms of how things trade. You do find the South African market easier, you said. And now is that just because you are more familiar with the businesses in South Africa or versus the American businesses? Or is there something else, do you think, to the market structure? I think first and foremost, uh, yes, that is the reason. Um, because I, I do have an ear to the ground, you know, People like Anthony Clark, they go and kick the tires and see the people at the companies and, and do research. And so I can see what's going on around here. You know, I can see that uh, this business is up for left and there's people struggling and, and things like that. Whereas if you go back 10 years, the thing was, the market was moving in a straight line upwards and it's a lot easier to trade like that. Um, the American market is very different and it took me a while to work out how, how this thing works. Um, you know, there's a lot of people watching it. There's, you just have to go on Twitter and everybody's. Uh, you know, selling some service or something that can help beat the market or has made like $80,000 in one day or something like that. Um, but more than that, there's, there's just so many analysts watching these stocks and they report quarterly. So a stock will miss expectations by one cent and the thing will be punished mm. um, supremely uh, overnight in the after hours market. And you just, you just know that you, <laughs> you're in for a hiding the next day. Um, and for me to work out where these things are going, you know, you have to do quite a lot of research. So I think that's often best left to the experts. But having said that, having these two portfolios does help me because often, like this year, I'm having a drawdown on the local market, but I'm doing very well in my US account. Um, so I think the two can complement each other. So you, I think you need to run either two different strategies, maybe a, a a swing-based strategy or a scalping strategy and a trend-following strategy or just trade uncorrelated markets or uh, different styles or something. Um, mm. So, yes, I think um, 
from time to time, it has been a lot easier. And certainly over the long term, I've done a lot better um, where it's been a bit more erratic. But um, I'm certainly looking to improve my, my US account performance over time because uh, I want to be growing my offshore portfolio a lot more given where the RAND dollar is and the future of the country. Yeah. Yeah, quite right. So I think having having offshore money and having an asset base but in offshore currencies is 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 vital, I think, for everybody, irrespective of whether you choose to continue living in South Africa or or ultimately to move abroad. I just think it's good from a diversification perspective that you have offshore investments. So learning those markets is absolutely important. Um, as we draw towards the end of this interview now, Richard, I just got two more questions for you. So you, you started this, as you said, in your early twenties, um, you went to a seminar and, uh, and ultimately it's been quite a successful journey for you over the years. And it sounds like also quite a fun journey as well, quite rewarding. But now if you were to go back to have a conversation with yourself as Richie, Richie T back in your early twenties, um, and you're about to embark on this journey. Are there any particular nuggets of advice you would give to yourself? And I mean, I guess in this context, I'm saying, imagine another youngster came to you and wanted some advice about where to start, how to start, what sort of things to look for, uh, for a, a successful investing career in the markets. Sure. So, you know, I think, you have to be passionate. And Anthony said that on, on his interview with you as well. And you can see people like this that are still so passionate about markets so many years on. You know, I think Anthony and uh, people like Mark Minervini are in their 50s and, and, and they're still so passionate about the markets. And you know, I think in 10 years' time, I'll, I'll be in the same position. So the, you have to want to learn about the markets. It has to interest you. Um, my brother-in-law has got no interest in the markets. He wants to give me money and then, you know, tell me when he's made 30% or something. And, mm -hmm. you know, so the passion, I think, is, is number one for me. Um, you have to stay humble. I mean, the, the market, uh, you, you know, can humble you very quickly. I had a very good year last year on the local market and then got brought down to earth very quickly this year. So, you know, when you're outperforming, you can't be crowing from the rooftops, um, because the next year you might underperform. And when you're underperforming, um, I use those periods to try and uh, knuckle down, hone, improve my strategy, read more books. Um, what am I doing wrong? So always adopting a growth mindset um, and to try and improve on your mistakes. Um, I'm lucky in that I'm quite a disciplined and you know, consistent person in the way I, I train and the way I do my, my trading um, to a large extent. But markets are very emotional places and they can be fraught with fear and greed. So I think it's just about managing that. Um, you, you, you know, you have to stay humble, a desire to always improve. Um, and then I think just to be curious, you know, I, I read a lot of books and that's not necessarily a good thing. I think this year I've, I've, I've tried to set up a goal for myself and that started with lockdown to read, you know, 50 books. Um, and a lot of people say, you know, it's, it's what you extract from the books or how many times you reread the same book uh, that counts. But I've certainly found that it's, it's added a whole lot of knowledge to my um, nomenclature and understanding of the way things work um, and different types of books as well. So I, I guess to, to summarize your question, it's, it's around passion, um, staying dogged and determined and, and you will get there. Mm. But um, you know, I, I don't mind working on a Sunday or a Saturday. This to me is not work. It's just really the greatest puzzle in the world. It's like 
a casino that you can win at, you know, if you're really good. And if yeah. you are good, uh, the market will pay you. And, and if you're not, then go back and learn. Yeah, fantastic. What a great answer. And you mentioned that you read and you've tried to read 50 books this year. That's a big, um, that's huge. It's one a week, basically. So a lot more than I've managed to achieve this year. Now, uh, are there any particular books that you would suggest uh, if you had to t- pick two or three of your favorite books that is a must read for anybody interested in the markets? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there are so many good books and, and you can form a list of them. And, uh, but, you know, I think Mark, Mark Minervini, I mentioned earlier, he's mentioned in, in Jack Schrager's Market Wizard books, um, one of the original ones. And th- this guy, I think he, he delivers like a $5,000 course or something once a year in October, and he's actually doing it online this year. But that's not the one I'm going to recommend, by the way. But um, his books are really excellent. So he's got, he's got four out, uh, th- uh, Trade Like a Stock Market Wizard and Think and Trade Like a Champion. Those two are excellent. And then there's another one called Momentum Masters, where he is interviewed with two other momentum-based traders. Um, and then he's written one on mindset, mindset secrets for winning, I think it's called. So those are really good. Um, I've read those all. And then there's another one that I stumbled across this year called High Performance Trading by Steve Ward. And he's actually a UK-based coach, a high-performance coach. And I've enrolled for his course, which is it's like 400 pounds or something. So... Um, but, you know, he's got a lot of work on YouTube already. But this guy, I think, is really underrated. His book is called High, Probability, sorry, High Performance Trading. And he's written a few others about sports betting and bulletproof trader and things like that. But High Performance Trading was a fantastic book for me. Um, it really looks at, at things, you know, how do you improve your edge to, to get excellent performance? This guy's worked with pro poker players, Olympic athletes, people who really want to be at the top of their game. So he looks at that mental edge. Um, and I think there's a lot in that, Garth. If you just look at how Rusty approached the World Cup with the Springboks, you know, you look at the analysis of the, of the coin toss, the whole psychological element in trading is huge. Yeah. And I think one of your guests, Arthur Buchner, I think it was, said yes. uh, um, books on trading strategy are a dime a dozen. So once you've got that down, it's really about managing your emotions and your mindset. Mm. So that's what I've tried to focus on this year. Uh, I've bought a lot of books on mindsets and, and trading psychology. So you can look at, at Brett Steenbarger. I think he's written some good stuff as well as Van K. Tharp. He's got a book called Super Trader as well. Yep. Um, but I'll certainly be trying to explore Steve Ward's work a bit more. In the That's future. interesting. I, I'll, I'm going to look him up actually, High Performance Trading by Steve Ward. So Because I'm looking for a new book. I'm just uh, about to finish my current audio book. So I'll actually download that. That sounds excellent. I'm looking for another uh, and as you say, books around trading psychology really um, are, are, are what it's about. They interest me a hell of a lot as well, far more than books around, like you say, trading methodologies. Those books are a dime a dozen. But if you can find stuff that talks to the psychology and the psychological aspect of trading, um, those are very, very interesting. So thanks for those suggestions, Richard. Um, I'm going to bring it to an end there, Richard. It's really been super speaking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Um, I think the listeners are, are, are due a treat to listen to you. And um, it's wonderful. I'll, I'll, let's keep in touch because uh, I think there's, yeah, maybe we can even chat again at some stage in the future. Great, Garth. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to listening to season three. Super. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, 
a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.